COVID-19 is unlike any virus we've seen before. In the beginning of the pandemic, it was most prominent in urban and suburban areas before hitting rural America hard in the fall of 2020. As labs struggled to keep up with the demand for testing, rural communities struggled to find enough beds and staff for their sick patients. So, how do rural communities stay on the forefront as they fight the pandemic? With strong partnerships, frequent communication, and a direct line to the experts. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 10 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. So today we're talking about the epidemiology of COVID-19, how it has affected rural America differently than urban and suburban areas, and the impact of testing in the fight against the pandemic. Yes, we have an incredible guest today who is a clinical laboratory scientist and infection preventionist. He is a wealth of knowledge and one of those people you could talk to for hours because he seems to know everything and it's all fascinating, useful information. Our guest today is John Baker, Director of Labs for Sparrow Health System in Lansing, Michigan. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, John. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and Sparrow Labs? Well, thank you. Um, I, I'm the Director of Laboratories at the Sparrow Health System, and I've spent uh, most of my career in either laboratories, teaching, or uh, working with infection prevention, both in uh, large hospitals and a good deal of it in uh, rural America, including a stint in Alaska. Wow. I did not know that. You lived at, How long were you in Alaska? I was in Alaska for two years. Okay. And what was that like, different from, you know, rural on the mainland <laughs> or <laughs> this part of it? It's very rural. I worked in the part of Alaska that they classify as the Alaskan bush, which basically means that you can't drive there. And so it's largely a third world country and very, very different from here, cold, um, and a lot of very, very interesting uh, healthcare challenges and a lot of great opportunities as well. So John was so bored while he was in Alaska <laughs> that he actually became an ordained minister. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I attended the Alaska Moravian Seminary while I was in Alaska. Wow. I'm learning things I didn't even think I was going to get to Now, that's today. news that you can use, Rachel. Yes, it is. That is fascinating. So, what about Sparrow Labs? Tell us a little bit about um, Sparrow as an organization and the lab that you guys have. Well, at Sparrow, we have a very large laboratory that goes beyond uh, our usual service area of the Sparrow Health System. We're one of the largest laboratories in the country. And we have a very large molecular laboratory, which was very fortunate for us with this particular pandemic because the one of the big focuses was the ability to be able to perform uh, COVID-19 PCR testing. And we were well equipped to enter that particular challenge. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, let's start with the why. Now, we do this on every episode so we can get to know our guests just a little bit better. John, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, my alarm clock gets me out of bed in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time we've heard that. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's good. But uh, but you got to remember, I'm a laboratory scientist, so we give very concise answers. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. Um, <laughs> but we do have a few social skills, so I do understand the subcontext of the question. 
Um, <laughs> for me, you know, I find the work very, very interesting. And yes, we find disease interesting. But we also realize that at the other side of that, there are people that need good health care. And it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be able to be part of that, particularly during the challenging times of a pandemic. So, John, you're a multi-talented guy, uh, not only running one of the largest labs uh, in the state and around the country, uh, but you're also well-versed in epidemiology. Uh, Can you give us a rundown of your credentials and what all of that means in terms of your particular expertise? Well, sure. I'm a a clinical laboratory scientist. I'm uh, certified by the Um, American Society of Clinical Pathology and the Department of Health and Human Services. And I'm uh, certified in uh, infection prevention and epidemiology by the uh, Certification Board in Infection Control. So John has spent some time here, Rachel, with us at our hospital. Actually, he was my director of infection control for a period of time. What does all that mean? What is infection control in a hospital and why is that important? Well, sure. Uh, The first uh, thing that we are concerned about infection prevention in the hospitals, which was very important during this pandemic, was let's keep our caregivers safe. Because if we don't have caregivers here, we won't be able to care for our patients in our community. But also extremely important is keeping patients safe. We bring patients into the hospital because we have the resources and we have the means to take care of them, but also we're congregating people with various illnesses. So the focus on making sure that we keep them safe, we don't uh, spread disease from patient to patient is extremely, extremely important. So uh, as someone who knows a lot more about the spread of disease and infection control and those kind of things than JJ or I do, I'm curious, John, about your experience leading up to the pandemic. So take us back, if you will, back to the before times. When did COVID-19 first come on your radar and what did you expect was going to happen next? What were you kind of thinking you needed to prepare for? Well, in late December, you know, there were a few reports circulating about this disease in, in China, but those weren't that unusual in that there have been other reports about other particularly potentially emerging diseases. And oftentimes those don't get out of a prescribed area or they don't become an, ep- they don't become an epidemic. But you're always you're kind of watching out for those. Then in January, it became a bit more real. This was definitely a highly infectious disease. It was moving through China and began to wonder what was going to happen in in the U.S. Could we first, you know, keep it, you know, outside of our borders? Then it became fairly evident that, you know, had entered the country. And then I think in the early days when we started seeing particularly uh, some healthcare workers getting ill, um, uh, you know, throughout the throughout the state, there was a kind of a realization that this thing is everywhere. And that was a very sobering realization. And by this time, you know, our hospital, as I know uh, Hillsdale was as well, had already stood up their incident command. They were, you know, breaking out the plans that had been made over the years for responding to a pandemic and beginning that process of being able to, you know, be very reactive to whatever, whatever happened. As the virus spread and this turned into a full-blown pandemic, What were you and your staff at Sparrow Labs doing and learning to keep up with all the new information to ensure that you had the robust strategies in place to make the testing as efficient as possible? Well, I think that was a particular challenge at the very beginning because at first there was uh, was not a test. 
then the CDC, you know, developed a test, and we were able to perform small numbers of the tests that the CDC had developed. And then it became apparent that there was going to be a large demand for testing. And as we started bringing up different platforms for testing, we began to run into significant supply chain challenges. You know, one of the first challenges we ran into is we simply ran out of swabs and media, you know, to collect the samples. And we were able to validate um, some alternate solutions for the media. And for us, we really were very concerned about running out of swabs. We licensed the technology and hired some experts and purchased some uh, commercial 3D printing equipment and 3D printed our own swabs. At the same time, we were scrambling for laboratory reagents and supplies. And during the course of the pandemic, we stood up at least nine different COVID uh, methods to try and keep our testing capability up with demand. So, you know, John, one of the the things is when we looked at this early on, uh, we all were scrambling. And, of course, you manage our labs. We were scrambling to try to identify what is an appropriate time frame and getting some of these test results back. And early on, we really struggled with that. I think everybody did, right? We didn't know what we didn't know. Uh, I remember a time where we had almost a week uh, time and delay for getting results back. That obviously impacts, you know, the patient, the care, et cetera. But uh, remarkably, Sparrow Labs, under your direction, uh, turned that time around into a 24-hour period almost at times. And we, uh, in mid-COVID, uh, were at a point where within 24, 36 hours, you had testing results back to us. And these weren't just the rapid tests. We're talking about the testing that goes off to your laboratory. Uh, that's remarkable. And we had heard horror stories from throughout the United States of week long, two weeks long. Uh, but it's it's remarkable what you've been able to do at your laboratory. And so talk to us about what that process entailed to expedite the resulting of those tests. Well, it entailed a number of different things in order to make sure that we stayed ahead of that. It entailed the, the willingness to to make some risky investments. And we thanked our, our board of directors and our leadership for being able to support that particular process because we bought new platforms. We brought in a technology called mass spectrometry time of flight, which is a process that's only being used in as last count, I think, five laboratories in the country. But this isolated us from some of the supply chain challenges. And we made a number of other different purchases to try and stay ahead of some of these supply chain challenges. And so we were able to maintain sufficient testing capacity because some of the um, more standard platforms uh, during the course of the pandemic, the supplies for those became rarer and rarer, and people saw their capacity to test diminish. We also had to bring on and um, train a large amount of staff. This is a considerable higher volume of testing. Uh, at the peak, at the peak of the pandemic, we were doing perhaps 3,500 tests a day, and we have a capacity right now to do four or five thousand tests a day. And so these um, these these challenges, the dual challenge of getting enough people and also getting enough supplies and and and, tra- and training people, 
uh, quickly was a was a big challenge in sort of staying ahead of this. Also, also being able to make sure that the collection process was in place, and that was a challenge not only for us but for um, some of our other hospital partners, and particularly rural hospitals. Um, and I think we've seen in Michigan, we've seen hospitals stand up the process for being able to collect these samples more so than we've seen, I think, in some other states. You know, John, you did it remarkably well, and I want to commend you for your hard work with that. You're in a college town, number one, you're at Michigan State University, and uh, certainly that had to cause a little bit of panic inside of you to think about uh, students returning and the spread and the testing. And uh, But one of the things that you did that, that I remember early on in reading about was you created community testing sites. And do you want to talk to us a little bit about uh, what that did for you and uh, the purpose behind that? Well, sure. We um, we felt that one of the significant needs that had been articulated throughout the country was the availability of testing uh, for for the population. And so we began by standing up a drive-through collection site at uh, an old hospital in town. And we quickly exceeded the physical capacity there. And so we began opening up other sites um, at what were then closed buildings. And then as the pandemic continued, we opened up uh, collection sites at some of our affiliated hospitals. Um, And then we had to figure out what to do as people wanted to come back to some of the buildings that we were utilizing. And so we ended up working with uh, local realtors and the Sears Corporation to take over an old Sears Auto Center, which has 14 bays that all drive through. And at the peak of the pandemic, we were seeing more than 1,000 uh, people a day through that one that one site. You mentioned um, part of the purpose for that was that the importance of the availability of testing for the population in the middle of something like this. So from an epidemiology perspective with your expertise on that, Tell us a little bit about the value of testing in a pandemic. Obviously, we approach this very differently than something like flu testing that is done as needed when people are sick. There's more asymptomatic testing being done for something like this. So tell us a little bit about why that matters and why that needs to be done and and when maybe it doesn't need to be done. Well, the the testing is very important to our public health partners in terms of knowing the extent of the disease in the community. And fortunately, we were able to have the testing available as well as a population that really wanted to know whether they had COVID or not, if somebody thought they'd been exposed, which was vital because um, if if people hadn't presented themselves for testing, we wouldn't have had the public health information that was so necessary in terms of getting a handle on the, the pandemic and taking the appropriate, the appropriate measures. Uh, it also became very important to test people that you were admitting to your hospital uh, so you could take the right precautions in those settings. And as we opened back up, it became very important to be able to test people preoperatively so that we could offer those services. And because one of the things that people noted throughout this pandemic was there were not just the mortality and morbidity associated with COVID, but there was also people becoming ill and dying because they weren't seeking hospital services. And so it was very important to assure the population that it was safe to to come and seek these services because it's unsafe not to seek 
these hospital services. You know, we talk to people around the country and the medical examiner offices around the country were noting a sharp increase in outside of hospital deaths uh, that were marked and could be due to little other than people just not seeking medical care. So it became very important in terms of taking care of our communities to make sure that we were providing that usual life-saving care. And I know that's been a very important message uh, here in the Hillsdale community. You know, it has, John. And one of the, and we've said this oftentimes on these programs, one of the unintended consequences of the governor's decision to shut down elective surgeries was we sadly watched uh, our community uh, become sicker. And unfortunately, they didn't have access to what was once elective, which is now emergent. And then we had, as you witnessed uh, as well, a reluctance of people uh, to want to come into the hospital because they thought, surely, we're going to contract COVID at your hospital. And I think you would have to say, as an epidemiologist yourself, is these are some of the safest places uh, right now in in the fight against COVID is our hospitals. They're seeing, you know, rapid cleaning, uh, turnaround times, terminal cleanings, all of these things that we do, as well as screening people, checking individuals, limiting the contact. Um, and so I don't know if you want to speak a little bit to that, but, you know, that plays a significant role in the health and wellness of our community. Yeah, certainly both the testing and the other methods that we've taken have made the hospitals a safe place. And that's always you know, first and foremost for us in the in the hospital community. And the challenge really became assuring the population that it was safe. Now, some of those safety measures came at a cost. You know, that meant that we couldn't have as many visitors in the hospital. You know, that was to keep the patients safe so that we could keep providing these services. And those are a tough price to pay for for some people and something that we, I think, in all the hospital communities struggled greatly with. There's, you know, we know the importance of those kinds of contacts and it was it was very difficult to institute some of the measures that we had to to keep people safe. And so there's a lot of different challenges. We have to keep the patients in the hospital safe. We have to assure the public that it is a safe place to come. And we also have to find ways to make sure that we're providing compassionate care as well. And, and, it's, a, and it's, a, it's a big challenge. One of the things that has made that easier, I think, for our health system, and I think you would probably say the same here, is that the public has been very supportive of healthcare workers. And so while they're managing these multiple challenges, at least they're hearing from their community that they're thankful that they're doing those things. Right. And one of the cool things, too, that our community did was we have 1,300 yard signs out in Hillsdale County. Still, I still see them. I mean, we I think we we started this in maybe April, that we first had signs available that people could show that support so that when our staff is driving home after a long, exhausting 12-hour shift, they see that sign in someone's yard that says, we support our healthcare heroes now more than ever. And it really has been very touching for our staff, but also really incredible to see how long people have kept those up. I mean, I I don't think I've seen very many that are not there anymore. And if they're not, it's probably from the weather. It's from the weather. But for, you know, six months now, people have had that up and have been showing that kind of support for healthcare workers. And that brings me to a question I have too, John, because you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation how early on we were hearing about healthcare workers who were getting sick um, and that a big part of the goal with infection control and infection prevention is to keep caregivers safe. So, 
One of the questions that I've had is when you see or you hear these stories, and I imagine they're more unique and they're not super common, but you hear stories of healthy, young healthcare workers getting sick and ending up losing their lives to this virus. And in terms of risk, um, obviously, healthcare workers have a higher risk of being exposed at some point. But is there a higher risk that the exposure they could have is going to be more detrimental than maybe your average person? Well, that's that's very true. And I think early on in the pandemic, the entire world was learning more and more each day about just how this disease is, tra- is transmitted. And there became an early recognition that some of these patients had very, very high viral loads and that the the type of exposure that you got, the how much, and this is true for any infectious disease, how much of the microorganism you, you are exposed to or you're inoculated with, so to speak, will have a lot to do with how severe the disease is. And so uh, some of these healthcare workers were taking care of some of the, mo- the sickest patients at the beginning of this pandemic. And that that was a very surprising and very scary thing is that we we heard of people and and knew people. Um, fortunately, in our case, most of them, you know, outside of our health system, but people that we knew, as you said, young, healthy people uh, becoming ill and dying from uh, from this disease. And we know that some of the measures that were taken, you know, f- from a community standpoint, and as we quickly took significant measures within the healthcare systems to at least prevent that spread of the disease. And I think that's one of the things that becomes a little bit uh, sometimes misunderstood about the use of masks. It is a risk reduction uh, process. You know, could you potentially get, you know, COVID from somebody who's wearing a mask? Yes, you could. Uh, But if you do in that particular case, the likelihood is that you've been exposed to a much smaller dose. And that has everything to do with how ill you become. So there were one of the things that becomes difficult in the beginning, particularly for scientists, is that you had to deal with this disease in the early days without knowing everything. So one of the things that I admire about my good friend John Baker here is that I would say that he's a guy that uh, has the human touch. His ability to relate to people uh, is second to none, and he builds collaborative uh, partnerships. And John, you have quite a few partnerships with other rural hospitals in rural communities. In fact, just driving here from Lansing, which is a little bit of a hike, uh, you stopped at a rural hospital, um, you know, not too far up the road, just to check in on them. So that really speaks to the nature of John. But, you know, why don't you walk us through what you saw happening with your rural partners as the pandemic progressed from testing to operations? I'm sure you heard everything about staffing and everything in between. So how did this uh, impact your rural partners differently than maybe even you experienced at a metropolitan system? Well, sure. I think we saw in the metropolitan area certainly a large, large demand for testing and for other services and for information but it was relatively expected, and we start out on a large scale. What we've seen in some of the rural hospitals is that there can be a small cluster of infections, and it takes them from zero to 100 in terms of what their response has to be. Uh, you know, there were a couple of days at a couple of our rural hospitals where we got called in to stand up their incident command structure, you know, outside of what we were already stood up, you know, to deal with a small cluster that was happening. And they had to go from, 
you know, testing, you know, maybe 50 people a day to testing as many as 500 people a day. And that's a that's significant. A, that's a larger scale yeah. increase than than what it is for us in the large metropolitan areas. And um, also within the rural communities, information travels a little faster. So, you know, so if there's been an outbreak or something, people all hear about it right away. And they all they're all looking right away for a lot of information and a lot of services, and it's a it, that's a particular challenge to be responsive for that. And our our rural hospitals, I think, have done a tremendous job in doing that. Well, John, notwithstanding the fact, and we've spoke to several CEOs on this program before, uh, we had to make labor cuts because we do not have the capital, we do not have you know the day's cash on hand that most larger systems would have in access to cash. And so we had to make decisions early on for layoffs. And we heard that throughout healthcare in general, but primarily the small rural hospitals that, you know, they didn't have a lot of that access. So I'm sure you saw both ends of it. You had the opportunity to to see the increase in testing, but the decrease in staffing and to try to mix that created a very significant burden on our healthcare workers. And I think that's where the strain came in. Um, you know, for us in 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 our hospital, we never had the first wave. We never experienced it. But what we did experience was the increase in testing, the anxieties of our community, the constant calls, those types of things, coupled with early on the reduction in our staffing. And I'm sure that your rural partners had that same experience. And that's difficult. Well, certainly, JJ. And I think that at this pandemic, at the very same time, it underscored the importance of rural health care and how vital that is. At the very same time, it threatened its very existence because the financial impact early on, particularly we closed down you know, ambulatory surgery or all surgery, for the most part, that wasn't absolutely uh, emergent, uh, had a devastating effect on, on our rural health care system. And hopefully, as we as we as we move forward on this, there's a realization at all levels that also underscored just how vital those those systems are in taking care of our populations. And I think it highlights the importance of what we're trying to do in our program here, which is to raise the awareness uh, of rural health in America. But part of that is the struggles that we have and the challenges with finances, you know, and the cost containment and those types of things. And so one of the things we've done here at Hillsdale is advocate for programs like PPP and the CARES Act and try to claw as much of that funding as we can to support the operations of our hospital. And it has been a challenge as well. So uh, hats off to you and your staff for what you've been able to do uh, to support rural health. And you supported me. I remember the early morning hours we'd be talking about, uh, John, what do you think? What are you seeing? And you are a great mentor uh, and a friend to our hospital during that. So I want to thank you for that, John. Well, you're very welcome. It's, uh, It's always a pleasure to be here. So one last question for you, John. What can we be doing in rural communities to better serve our patients during this time, particularly when it comes to testing? It's still an important part of fighting the pandemic, but there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of work to be able to provide appropriate testing locations and keeping everyone safe in the process, right? Uh, Yes, I I think many of the things that were absolutely necessary during this time are the very things that you've been doing here. Um, And certainly the most important thing is to keep those regular life-saving services operating. You know, that's the the key thing. This this pandemic has had a devastating effect on our nation. And 
if not for some of the measures taken, particularly in rural health care, it would have been it would have been it would have been worse. And it's very important that we move forward out of this continuing to provide for the, you know, the health and well-being of these communities. Well, John, once again, we want to thank you for joining us here today. You truly have a wealth of knowledge in this area, and I think we've learned a tremendous amount uh, from you today on how and why uh, this virus is spreading and affecting us the way that it has, uh, particularly in rural health. So uh, we want to thank you for your time today and the opportunity to speak uh, to this important issue and uh, to the opportunities that John has afforded us in his relationship with Hillsdale Hospital in our linkage with Sparrow Hospital is that uh, John is technically director of our laboratory. And so uh, he's provided excellent oversight. And we made this decision uh, as a hospital, John, uh, provided us services at Sparrow as a reference lab, and we realized that there's great opportunities that could exist if we had a management agreement with Sparrow and into the tune of well over a million dollars of additional equipment that we received, better pricing on GPOs because now we belong to a better, bigger organization that has group purchasing power. And so there's been a lot of great opportunities that John and his team have brought to Hillsdale in oversight, policies, direction, and then access to testing. I, I, I shudder to think where we would be today uh, had we not had a relationship with one of the largest labs uh, like Sparrow and where we would be in our testing capabilities and what we would be doing for our community. And so it's been uh, remarkable to watch the journey and to have leadership like John Baker uh, for Hillsdale Hospital representing Sparrow Hospital. So, John, we say thank you for your time. Once again, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, before we close, John, we'd like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So uh, we want to know what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? Well, I think I'd probably go back to Alaska for for being abso- absolutely unique. How uh, could you not? <laughs> how could you not? I mean, come on. You know, the uh, I, I had the opportunity in some of the programs that I ran in Alaska to do a lot of uh, village travel. And I, I think the the first village I went to, I was there's always a little bit of a culture shock in um, in rural Alaska. And before I traveled to the clinic, I before I traveled to the village, I I talked to the person at the clinic, which is where I would be sleeping, and they told me I was really going to like it there because they had flush toilets. Oh. Uh, later, later traveled to places that did not have such uh, wow. such conveniences, but um, as a truly um, unique. Um, uh, healthcare system, as, as well as a as a unique uh, uh, culture that I enjoyed very much as well. So a lot of different um, challenges, even than even than the rest of rural for, lower forty eight, as they they would call it. Thank you again for joining us today, John. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll talk about rural health leadership and what it's like to be a hospital leader in rural America today. Our guest for that episode is a leadership development expert who specifically works with rural hospital CEOs. So be sure to tune in. And as a reminder, we are collecting patient testimonials to be featured during the Voice of the Patient segment. If you have an experience to share about the positive impact you or your loved one has had as a patient at a rural hospital or healthcare provider, doesn't have to be Hillsdale Hospital, call our direct-to-voicemail line at 269-447-1265 and share your story with us. You just might be featured on a future episode of Rural Health Rising. Again, that number is area code 269 447 
1265. And you can also look that up on our website at ruralhealthrising.com. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, John Baker, Director of Labs for Sparrow Health System in Lansing, Michigan. For more interviews like this and more information, or to share your patient or family testimonial with us, visit ruralhealthrising.com.